welcome to another episode of Nomadingas. In this episode, I get to chat with my chingon producer, Filiberto. And this time, I get to ask the questions. We discuss his latest article on immigration, his role as the editor for Workday Minnesota, and his journalism goals. Immigration is really concerning and important issue within our community, and I really hope you all listen in. And also, as always, I thank you all for your support. All right, bye for now. Bye. All right, Filiberto, welcome back. This is the second time you're on the show. Yeah, but you're the one hosting it, or... You know, I am the one so, interviewing you this yeah, time. Yes, this is the first time. Oh, okay. This is the first time. Just to really get in your head a little bit. Every time someone's interviewed me, it's always not gone great. Really? Yeah. Oh, so I'm in for a treat? Is that yeah. what you're saying? Great. I'm difficult to interview. I don't like, I don't like being interviewed. It's well, very bitch, uncomfortable. This time around, you <laughs> suck it up because I'm going to interview. Actually, yeah. it's not even an interview. Like, I actually oh, don't. We're just going to have a conversation. Yeah, exactly. Because I hate the word interview because I don't want to interview people. I just want to chat. Guided, you're exactly. guiding the conversation. I'm just having a chat. You're facilitating. Yeah. Facilitating a discovery of ideas. <laughs> well, as we're chatting, let's let's revisit Filiberto for a minute, though. Let's, let's, it's like a let's, 70s TV show. Yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> let's take it back. Let's rewind. Let's tell us about Filiberto. Who is Filiberto? <laughs> well, as of as of now, I'm the editor of Workday Minnesota, which is a digital news publication out of Labor Education Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as part of that, I'm also really excited to announce that I should get a new timeline soon. But we're redoing the website. So if you look today. Uh, whenever it is that we post this episode, it'll look a lot different in a couple of weeks. That's awesome. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, because you've been working on that for a while. Working on that for a while. Wow. Yeah, from, from the inception of the idea of changing it, it's been a long time. But this development team is really, really good. So it'll look a lot different. That's what I do. Along, also, you can add handyman to handyman. your to your resume. You, well, you fixed my shower. Well, speaking of, <laughs> so everything in my bath. So we live together. Let's probably just close yes, that. Yes, we live together. Right. I'm your landlord of sorts. Yeah. But, so the, the funny thing is everything in my bathroom is falling off the walls. Really? Yeah. And I realize it's because of the humidity. Because, oh. like, the toilet paper dispenser is stuck. It's glued. And so the humidity breaks that chemical bond or that... Yeah, so it's know. ungluing itself? It just, it just <laughs> fell, yeah. And so, like, the towel rack fell off. So whilst I've figured out <laughs> downstairs stuff in my toilet, other things are falling apart. Well then. So I feel somewhat handy. I'm learning. I'm a new homeowner. I'm learning. Yeah. I'm learning. Yeah, remember that time we were freezing our asses off <laughs> because the fucking heater stopped working? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't notice for like a day because we didn't know that if you keep hitting the temperature up and it doesn't go up, that probably means that it's not working. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> we didn't know what I was realized that. Because I, I, I grew up in California and then thus far since I've lived here, I've had apartments, and yeah. I don't control the heating. It just right. magically becomes Hot. warm. And I've always been on different, on like, I was up to on the third floor at first, so it was yeah. always way too warm in that, you know, Yeah, happened. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that was funny. So it's part of my story, too. Is in I'm our like, freaking winter jackets. Right. <laughs> I'm not from Minnesota, so everything, so one of the things I always say to, the thing I always say to people about being in Minnesota, and this has a lot to do with my reporting, too, is that I always feel like, every day I feel like I'm on a study abroad trip. Every day I have that sense of confusion, uncertainty, curiosity, and just like dislocation, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't feel, never feels like home. It is my home. I've been here seven Mm -hmm. years now. But it just never feels like home. What? Well, I guess, so, oh my god, this chair sounds like I'm farting, actually. (laughs) I am not farting, this chair is just squeaky, okay? You want to just turn a little bit, Ben? Yeah, You don't have to move, shift around so much? Yes. Okay, Okay. great. that's better. Anyway, on the concept of home, though, like, so what, what do you consider home? I mean, I, like, I've really, I've learned how to get past the idea that home is a geography Mm-hmm. And that home is where the heart is. No, <laughs> fuck that. And because I say, because I fucking cuss so much, I have to always mark these episodes as explicit. Yeah. Even though it's not like I'm I'm talking about explicit content, I'm not yeah. talking about 
yeah, some yeah, really yeah. unfortunate sexual thing. Right. I'm just using a lot of cuss words. Right. So I'm gonna get back to what you're saying, but like part. Well, I guess part of home for me is that uh, I was raised in Spanish by immigrant parents, and mm. so home is language. Yeah. Home isn't a geography. It's 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 about who I'm with, how much do I care about them, how comfortable I am with them, and what language are we speaking. Yeah. So pretty much no matter where I am in Minnesota, as long as I'm speaking in Spanish, I feel like I'm home. And one of the things I, I've learned to understand about myself is because of where I grew up in Los Angeles and because my parents didn't speak English, a lot of the English that I learned early on was with like dudes that ended up being gang members later or were associated with a lot of, like their family was part of gangs. And so it's partly why I cuss so much because like all those dudes, that's how they communicated. My parents were never like, you shouldn't use those words because they didn't know what I was saying. Right. <laughs> so home, home, home is a moving target for me. And mm. it's more, it's more liquid than it is fixed, I guess. Yeah. So I'm trying to, I mean, I bought this house, right? And it didn't really plan on it. And it wasn't really like a big goal for me, at least buying a house in Minnesota. But, you know, both of us are making it our home by the people that we invite into it. By yeah. the attitude and the environment that we create for ourselves. And to, a, I think, a to a lesser extent, or maybe greater extent, like producing your podcast yeah. by and large in the home. We're making it a business. Yes, we are. <laughs> On this lovely carpet. This got. lovely carpet. You should yeah. tell you about the carpet. Oh, but totally, I can't describe yeah. it, sorry. No, it's okay. Carpet's pretty. Yeah. Um, but we're here to talk about the article that you just published. And it was also published on what platform again? So um, it was, it was co-published. Uh, so most of my writing goes on Workday. And prior to that, it was on El Huateque, um, which produces this podcast. But uh, this, this article was co-produced with the North American Congress on Latin America, which is an organization that's been around since the 60s. So they're definitely like a... a left center left organization that's been very observant about what's going on in Latin America mm-hmm. and they had a call for labor in Latin America and I and I was talking to the editor about something else and she was like well if it's about Latin Americans or immigrants in the United States then you should pitch me a, an article and I've been wanting to write about Worthington Minnesota mm-hmm. for since I moved here basically. Yeah. So. Okay, so can you talk about Worthington? Because I read the article and sure. I, cause I've never heard I've never heard of Worthington Minnesota yep. until I read the article and um the interest, one of the interesting things that I, I read on your article is that it's primarily um, it's primarily immigrants, um, but it's not Mexican. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. Guatemalan. Was that correct? Uh, there's a lot. Well, so Worthington is a town of sixteen thousand mm-hmm. in south. Oh God, uh, southwest Minnesota. It might be east. Sorry, I forgot. On the Iowa border, mm-hmm. and it's town sixteen thousand, and it's close to majority, if not majority, people of color. Okay. Most, so of those people of color, most of which are immigrants, uh, Mexican, as you were saying, Guatemalan, uh, a lot of Hmong folks, like the, the sort of general number that I actually couldn't find a reference for, but everyone says is like 67 different languages are spoken. There's like a Buddhist temple, there's, oh, wow. like I, I rarely find a Guatemalan shop in Los Angeles, so mm-hmm. like it was wild to see like a, a shop devoted solely to Guatemalan goods and crafts and pupiles yeah. and everything. My, my PhD work was on Guatemala. I spent a lot of time in Guatemala. I'm not Guatemalan. People always confuse that. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was interesting for me to see all that. Asian grocery stores, all this stuff yeah. in this very small town. Yeah. And the school age population is 70% POC. So, definitely the numbers are changing. But yeah. The power structure is all white, yeah. primarily. I mean, I just bring this up from the, the get-go. is because when we talk about immigration and, yeah. um, well, just in general, like when people hear immigration in the news, they just automatically think Mexican. Yeah. And, also, yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, like, what's because ha- a lot of the, like what's happening with these, well, what been called for what they had these concentration camps in the U.S. is yeah. it's primarily non-Mexican immigrants. Non Mexican immigrants, it's yeah. Haitian, it's a lot of Black immigrants. Like the the really difficult thing for me as a reporter, to a lesser extent, I mean, I report about labor generally and work, and yeah, every so often immigration, and I personally do asylum work for Guatemalans seeking political asylum. So I'm in constant conversation with folks that do this work. And one of the really difficult things for me and troubling things for me is the denial of blackness in these conversations around immigration. And whether that's because of the bias of news media, whether that's our own as Latinx people, anti-blackness and our denial of recognizing that community, interacting with the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think both things are play a major role in that. And it's, and it's, yeah. and it's 
you know, I'm focusing on Latinx folks in Worthington because they are numerically the largest group of people, but certainly um, there is a problem generally in the way we talk about immigration that uh, African immigrant folks, Haitian folks, Caribbean folks are yeah. denied. Right, And exactly. we, in and of ourselves, often don't recognize black Mexicans, black Guatemalans, indigenous yeah. groups that are part of those communities right. as well. The, at least for me, with my clients from Guatemala are, are by and large mm -hmm. uh, indigenous. Yeah. And going, well, saying that racism exists within POC communities. Right. Um, and that's something that, that's something that is really ignored. Um, because it's one of those things where, like, you're POC, you can't be racist, which actually that is not very, that's not true, that's far from the truth. Um, but Worthington, though, so how did you find out about Worthington? Like, so when I was, um, I think when I was, I actually can't even entirely remember, but when I was getting ready to move to Minnesota, I was just looking for, like, anything about Latinx people, like, any articles. Mm -hmm. So I ran into Satul, which is the Center for Trabajadores Unidos en Lucha. And then I also just ran into this article that was published, I think, in an Orange County publication about uh, immigrants in Kansas or something. Okay. And so there are a couple of articles that sort of navel gaze into these communities and say, oh, look, there's brown people in Kansas. <laughs> look at them making tortacos. Isn't that Who fascinating? Knew? Right. And so I didn't want to write that. Right, right, right. And then some, eventually, early on when I moved here, um, heard about Worthington and the, the interesting racial dynamics. And... Uh, I wanted to write something for a long time, but when I was running out of Wateka, I just didn't have the money to drive down. It's like mm -hmm. three hours away, four hours away. I, you know, I couldn't just do that. Uh, now running Workday, I had the opportunity and resources and the freedom to explore that. And I think, I think there's like two things that I, I think are really important that I don't really get into in the article, but that really drive my interest in talking about these things. One is that my father's generation he came to the United States, uh, it would have been in the 40s or 50s, he was a much older man, mm -hmm. passed away about eight years ago now, and when he was 83, I'm 37, so I was fairly young then too, he was old, uh, but his, his generation, they went to, he literally would tell me that where they crossed Texas, you flipped a coin and you either go to Chicago or Los Angeles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's how we ended up in LA. Wow. It wasn't really any plan. It's yeah. just, okay. I don't know if he literally flipped a coin, but that's like the, right. you know, that's the favorite, right? I thought it was interesting to find out that um, the majority of Mexican immigrants here in Minnesota moved here because of the beet industry. Yep. Sugar beet industry. They moved out of the beet farms yep. and yep. then. Yep. And then I took a class in college. Um, so you went to college out here. So. I went to college out here and I learned about Mexicans outside of my Mexican <laughs> culture that I was you know, Mexican community that I was living in, but anyway, mm -hmm. but learned how, um, yeah, they live, they lived in these like small huts mm -hmm. and like, there was, of course, all the mistreatment and yeah, all the abuse, um, which I was like, Oh my God. And it's one of those things for like, once you're here, it's not like you can like pack up and go back because yeah. you're basically stuck. Or you can't like, at least in LA, if you don't like living in West Hollywood, you can go to Long Beach, right. you know, whatever. There's, right. there's a little bit of mobility there, but here, right. you get in Worthington or Sleepy Eye or any of those other little towns, mm -hmm. it's really hard to move around. Yeah. And so, like, part of my discovery of, of just being a brown dude in Minnesota and trying to figure out how to exist was recognizing that my dad's narrative just isn't true anymore. Mm -hmm. That the yeah. immigrant, our, our immigrant communities are no longer really going to big cities in the same way that they were for my dad's generation. Right. And upon further reflection it was like well if there's more and more people in these small towns what are the what's the infrastructure and what are the resources to defend their interests mm -hmm. to support them and advocating for themselves it's very there's not a whole lot right and so then it becomes my i see my role as a, a journalist connected to those communities to explore their experiences because they need it more than anybody else yeah they need that the recognition of their existence and the way they're fighting and the way they're pursuing their freedom and their dignity. Yeah. So there's that. And then also just like, I think one, one concept that we don't use as much in the Latinx community that I'm borrowing from our African brothers and sisters is the notion of diaspora. Like, mm -hmm. like my dad's diaspora into Los Angeles, my diaspora into Minnesota, right? Like Los Angeles is unaffordable. Los Angeles doesn't make sense for me. Los Angeles isn't a place where I can have a livelihood, where I can buy a home, where I can live with the dignity that I think I deserve or want. And so I moved here. Yeah. It wasn't really by choice. I don't necessarily like being here every day. I live my <laughs> life. There's things that I really enjoy. I've had a lot more opportunities. Like, right. like I, I talk like my dad now. Like, I came here for the opportunities. 
like I tell my homies in LA, like there's just more for us to do here because there's just right. not as many of us, yeah. and we're in demand. Yeah. And I get job offers constantly, and like these contracts yeah. and stuff, and I'm often saying no, and I'm very selective about what I do, and I enjoy it. Like there's this new uh, Latinx owned brewery, and I work there part time just because I want to. And, and what is the shout out? What brewery is this? Shout out Latonia to Cervecería. <laughs> shout out to Latonia. Tell them. No me digas sent you. No me digas sent you. I don't, I don't beer tend anymore, so you won't find me behind the bar. But all right, you've moved up in the world. Yeah, now I'm doing social the social medias. <laughs> but that's you know like we don't recognize our own diaspora and what that means for us. Right. And I think that's really important. Well, I think it's because a lot of times we choose not to like you know go that you know go that route you know. Yeah. But because, here I am. Because we don't want to be like our parents, even though we are. Right. I'm doing yeah. the same thing my dad did. Yep. I'm seeking opportunity. Where, where I can find it yeah. and I'm surviving and figuring it out and I'm also saying the same thing he did where he was like oh I'm just going to be in, in Los Angeles for like a couple of years and I'll move back to Mexico what immigrant parent didn't say that right all of our immigrant parents said that for the most part right and yeah. it's like oh, yeah, that's what I say oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a job in California I'm going to do so well because I don't want to go back and live in poverty I'm only going to go if I'm making yeah. a certain amount of money and I have all these plans mm-hmm. Actually, my Uber driver a few weeks ago, I think, uh, we talked about the exact same thing because he's Mexican and he's moving back to Mexico. He only has one more year here and then he's done. Mm. And this is the second time he actually gave me a ride somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, oh, I remember you. So you're I was like, yeah. Like, why are you still here, dog? Well, like, well, that's the thing. So he was here, he's been here for 28 years. And um, what he started doing uh, like about 10 years ago is he started planning his retirement in Mexico. Mm. So now he has a house in Mexico. Oh, so he's actually, like, working it out. Oh, yeah, I know. Right. He, like, 10 years but ago... retirement, he, though. Like, yeah. that's, you know, that's end of... Well, well, here's the thing. So he said that what... So 10 years ago, he started making plans. So, like, he bought property. Oh, yeah. Or he bought land. And then he bought property. And then he's built... Like, he was building the house. And then eventually it was built. And then his family moved over there. And he's still here. And Uber, and all he does is Uber drive. And he's been Uber mm. driving for a while. Like all day. Yeah. Damn. And I know. And he was just like, just one more winter, and then I'm done, and then I'm moving back to Mexico. And it's, and I, I bring this up because when you speak of retirement, because he said retirement, but in reality he said, I'm not going to retire because I can't. I still can't afford it. But at least over there in Mexico, I can just work a certain amount just to get by. Right. A lot of land and yeah. property. And yeah. he's like, and I'll be okay. I don't have to work as hard as I do here. Right. And that's the thing with um, the whole subject of immigration is um, what are immigrants doing here? They're working these hard jobs that nobody else wants. Right. Yeah, and in the case of Worthington, they're working for a giant um, meatpacking plant that basically just dominates the city. It's the biggest employer by far. And one of the things that I hope to get into in the future reporting is to talk more about the working conditions in the plant. So the day-to-day workers are organized by a union, and so there's certain protections for them, and you know there's there's things that are really important about that. What I'm more interested in is the subcontracted cleaners that do the overnight cleaning, that are not represented by a union, that are usually trafficked in, that are often injured on the job. So like the the sort of the most disgusting scenarios you can think of in a workplace, right? Like uh, a woman I talked to, I couldn't really verify the story, so I couldn't publish it, and I couldn't get into it, but. Um, she told me that her brother was cleaning something and some chemicals spilled on him and his entire back was burned and a couple oh years later God, he died of cancer. I mean, you hear often about, like, because the workers have to just go really fast, right? Because right. they have to get done cleaning before right. first shift starts. Uh, accidentally turn on a machine and lose a limb or something like that. Like, it's not it's not uncommon. Like, this is the same as what Upton Sinclair was writing about in the jungle. Like, these are the same working conditions. And these are where immigrants are now. Yeah. They're certainly in the fields, that's still a reality, but what we're finding in the Midwest is that wherever there's a big meatpacking plant, that's where you'll find uh, immigrant folks. Yeah. Actually, a few years ago, I was dating some guy who worked for me. For, for a meatpacking plant? A meatpacker? <laughs> yeah, it didn't really work because he didn't really speak English. And, <laughs> and, and I mean, I, you know, we got... We communi- we, the we, we the com- language of love can only take you so far. <laughs> I mean, we communicated, we communicated just fine, except, like, I don't know, we went to Perkins once, and, like, I had to order for him, so I mean, that was, yeah. and I was like, oh, I'm like, oh, God, just like my parents. No. <laughs> so I was like, I don't think this is going to work. Oh, that was, face. Oh, but, well, that's, and the thing is, though, like, some of these meatpacking plants, they like, actually pay their employees really yeah, well. they kind of have to. Yeah. 
Because um, he was making bank. Well, they were probably unionized, and they got it's yeah. this, it's the subcontracted folks overnight that get oh. really really badly. Yeah. And so part of my work as a journalist is I'm looking more at, at trafficking and labor trafficking, um, in particular uh, immigrant folks, Latinx folks, black folks. And so one case that I'm still developing, so I can't get too specific about it, is a, a guy that uh, a group of people that get trafficked to do construction work. They get a regular paycheck which is, you know, construction work pays a little higher than other jobs. But at the, when they get their paycheck, they are told that they have to reimburse the company for food and, and lodging and okay. cash. Oh, right. So that's the way they set up their wage theft. And so this article is going to take me a couple months to develop, but uh, I'm really excited about it because I'll get a chance to really unpack how wage theft works as it relates to, as it relates to labor trafficking, immigrant workers, and the construction industry. Um, but it's also devastating to write these articles because I'm, yeah. I'm dealing with like some of the worst cases of uh, abuse between an employer and employee that is offered in this country mm-hmm. that otherwise wouldn't get any attention because when you're talking about journalism, the focus is, I mean, this is the other thing that's really important for me that I learned here is that the focus is often the Twin Cities and what I'm interested in are the stories that nobody else is telling and that means I have to travel quite a bit. I have to yeah. leave the Twin Cities and pursue those stories. How far is Worthington from here? I think I mentioned earlier, uh, maybe four hours, but trying to light. Oh, yeah, it's getting it's dark. Getting I can dark. barely see you. It's the golden hour. Oh, there we are. Light. We have light. Oh, oh, nope. Nope. Yep. Sorry. Okay. It's touch. It's touch, and so it gets confusing. And God said, let there be light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, going back to your article, one thing that really depressed the shit out of me. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole article is depressing. Which I try, you know, it's... Uh, well, I mean, you really can't lighten up can't, that. You can't I can't lighten, lighten it up these like, difficult I mean, dynamics. Well, no, but I mean, there's hope in there somewhere, and I don't. My, my intention is. I mean, there is hope, but I mean, dour. I think the there, hope. The, the situation is dire. Yeah. But we can't. We can't avoid that. Right, but I think the hope is is that people like read the article and like try to do something about it, or at least educate themselves about like what's happening. Yeah, the Be- hope is that I can agitate folks yeah. into taking this thing seriously. Yeah. Because the one thing that really did hurt me was the you um, you were talking about parents having to talk to their children, um, having these conversations with their children about how they can come home from school and they might not be there. Yeah, like and yeah. it's and it's these. And they have to have these conversations like, okay, if I get picked up and I'm not home, this is what you need to do. This, you know, you need to right. do this, you need to do that. Like, like, this is how you need to take care of yourself. Like, that's heartbreaking. Right. And that, that's one of, the big, one of the big themes of the article and big themes of my life generally as an expert witness is the recognition. This is, I mean, I was learning about this before the Trump administration. The recognition that the border isn't between Mexico and, and the United States. Right. right. The border is uh, when you're in asylum in immigration court. The border is that judge. That judge on their own. There's no jury. There's no three judge panel. One judge arbitrarily decides whether someone stays in the United States has a chance to stay alive or gets sent back to their home country and likely will be killed. That's the border. In Worthington, the border is the road because that's where people get picked up and put into the custody of ICE. And there's always a potential of raids. That's just a thing that people have to deal with. And the potential, certainly a lot of things were happening around the Trump or the, around the Obama administration. Uh, so Obama has a, has a lot of responsibility for some of these dynamics, but it's been elevated under Trump. And so the fear, as we learned this last weekend, mm-hmm. is greater. Yeah. It's a lot greater. And so the anxiety is there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I used to do this podcast program uh, with Latinx youth at. Centro and our first le- our second or first session was after Trump won and so it was like okay we're not going to talk about podcasts today and I just kind of was like okay we're, what are right. you all feeling right yeah and they were devastated these young young children who are not really clear what citizenship means right know that there's threats and fear against them we're just devastated yeah it's, it is it's heartbreaking and you also talk about how because because I was reading as I was reading the article, my my first thought was like, who is there helping? Um, you know, who's helping in Worthington? And you mentioned there like there was a there's a church. Right? There's a Catholic church. Uh, there's um, community organizations now. There wasn't as much before. Um, unions are stepping up a little bit, uh, but there's there's not as much 
there is some infrastructure, but these are individual people, right? right? And yeah. so it's different than in the Twin Cities where people, I mean, one of the goofy things that happened after Trump won was people started organizing like uh, immigration defense groups. So yeah. as soon as there's a raid, this group will go and protect immigrant workers and it'll be fine. <laughs> Like there's a there's a there's a certain flaw in a lot of white folks taking on that role certainly, but right. there was also the lack of recognition that the raids were going to happen in the Twin Cities. Right. It's everywhere else. Yeah. And there's no we don't have an infrastructure out there. Mm-hmm. You know there are individuals there's now greater attention but you know when yeah. Trump first got elected there wasn't the first time I went to Worthington the, these organizations weren't doing as much. Right. And I, the first time I went to Worthington was a long time ago. I mean, I've been developing this story for a long time. It's just some stories take longer to mature, I guess. Yeah. But Callahan had been there for about a decade. And he's right. this sort of, he's this character that I love that I couldn't, it's harder to describe him because you kind of have to meet him. But he's this like old school, like, like he has like pomade hair, flattened. <laughs> he's like chain smoking in the rectory. You know, he was like, he was a priest in the 80s in Los Angeles when it was really hot and heavy. So I'm just like looking at this guy like, whoa, dude, you know some shit. Like, you've seen some things. Were you like, how did you end up here? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, are you in trouble? Like, what's going on? Cause are, my, you, are you hiding from the law? Yeah, you get stuck out here because like the hierarchy doesn't like you. Like, that's a common thing that happens in the That is a church. common thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He's just there kicking ass and trying to do good things. Yeah, and well, so actually, so like, so what are these organizations doing to help? So like, because um, I read that I mean, like, they're giving, they're trying to give like children shelter, the ones that need it, um, yeah. and they're trying to like educate people on like what to do. Right, know but, your rights stuff, organizing. Uh, the church is a sanctuary church, which is a big deal. So there's certain protections there. I mean, they like informally people chat on Facebook and let others know when ICE is coming so that they're aware of that. Uh, There's a pretty regular presence of an ICE man picking people up. And so there's ways that people can protect themselves, but it's just like the the specter and the possibility that's just always there. That's what what Trump has really been really effective at. Yeah. Right? Like ICE literally can't raid everyone. They don't have the personnel. Like, there's actually a limitation to how much they can do. Yeah. But it's the specter of, of possibility that gets people so anxious and has us so agitated and and just yeah. tortured every day. Right. I mean, I am, I'm, I'm both an, a citizen of Mexico and the United States. Mm-hmm. I, can, I feel this very intensely. Yeah. Because it's our community. Well, that... But it's also, like, we also have a fear of, like, being... Um, oh, my God, I lost the word... Um, like also like we might be picked up just because of the way we look right and it's not i mean in the 40s Profiling. They were, there we go right, yeah. right in the 40s they like deported mexican citizens or you uh u.s citizens of mexican heritage yeah that's not uncommon in this country yeah like there was um when i was in college we organized like a day labor center mm-hmm. and the mayor of pomona so i went to school at pitzer in the city of claremont the mayor of pomona is this like latino dude mm-hmm. who was like really republican knew Cesar Chavez but like was super Republican and he gets picked up by his own police force they thought he was an immigrant he named his idea because he was on a jog oh my god you know and he's like I'm the mayor so imagine like they see this immigrant looking dude these white cops I think they were white and he's like I'm the mayor <laughs> sounded like super crazy like straight out of born East LA and they still picked him up yeah they picked that's a fucked up shit and so obviously after that he became you know re-radicalized or something yeah you know, died shortly thereafter but yeah, man, we're all at risk of being profiled. Like, I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm taller and paler, so I know there's certain there's things that I avoid because of that. But like, it's also not like a get out of jail free card. Like, right, right, exactly. You know. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But so, in your opinion, though, um, in like, in you know, improving the situation, because um, I've been I've been reading all these articles about how like it's, um, you know, we just need to abolish ICE. Um, do you have any opinion on that? Because for me, like, I... Yeah. I don't know. Like, I... So, I'm going to take you back a little bit. So, um... Yes, take us back. So, part of part of the way I understand these systems is through my experience, both as a formerly incarcerated person, and then also someone that's reported a lot about 
uh, prison labor, the expansion of the deportation regime, the way it's been increasing in the Midwest. It's big, been a big part of my journalism. Mm-hmm. And where that, where that leads me to politically is the, the notion of abolition, that we can do away with, with these systems of incarceration, with the carceral state. And uh, I have a woman in mind that writes a lot about this. She was speaking in the New York Times, and I can't remember her name. It's Ruth something, and people that know me are get really upset with me for forgetting her name. But um, she has a really good explanation and, and a sort of ex- a sort of exposition about what what abolition means. That said, what's really and Professor Jimmy Patino at the University of Minnesota talks about this. What's really been confusing about these calls for the abolition of ICE mm-hmm. is they're not really saying that they want to get rid of this system of incarceration. They're saying let's get rid of ICE and the Department of Home or the Department of Homeland Security and do what we did before that, which is INS. Right? Yeah. That's not satisfying. That's not enough. Right? Like right, I, right. I want to get rid of all of it. <laughs> I don't believe that we need prisons. I don't believe that we need jails. I don't believe that... I mean, this is partly what Trump has done different than Obama. Like, Obama would do what's called catch and release. He was yeah. arresting a lot of people, but they would be released on bail. Trump is stacking them in custody, which means the expansion of private prisons, which means the expansion of exploitation vis-a-vis prison labor, vis-a-vis um, uh, solitary confinement, a whole host of other things, and targeting political leaders that are undocumented. Yeah. Like, this has gotten out of hand. Right. And so, no, I don't believe that just getting rid of the Department of Homeland Security or ICE is enough. All of it has to go. Right. Right. Yeah. Because basically, it's just legalized slavery. Yeah. 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 That's what it's become. Which, again, is something that we don't talk about, you know, because, you know, again, to most people's eyes, like, criminals are criminals. Right. You know, but it's like, what people don't really understand is, like, some of these some of these people that are incarcerated have like are picked up but with like for minor offenses right like one of the dudes when i was incarcerated one of the dudes that was there and so like part of what was happening at least i was inside la county was like we were most people in la county are waiting to be waiting to waiting to uh or waiting for their arraignments they're there for a couple of days not that mm-hmm. long maybe 10 percent are, are serving a sentence i was serving a sentence i was in there for two months because of the nature of deportation, because of the backlog, because of the necessity of having hearings, like dudes are in there for like six, seven months, yeah. maybe longer. And like, like one dude I talked to got picked up for selling cop counterfeit DVDs. <laughs> and he he's was there for the... like six months and that's possibly ridiculous. get deported. That is ridiculous. And that's the refrigerator making a lot of noise. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's a clanky old refrigerator. This is what happens when you live in the summer. Right. Here. <laughs> so it, is that is that justice? A yeah. dude just trying to get by, selling counterfeit DVDs. Yeah. Like. And, and he's punished for six months. Uh, possibly longer. Right. Like, I don't even know exactly. You know, separation of families, right. all these different things that have been happening. Yeah. No, I don't. It's. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me either, but yet, I mean, but this has been happening forever, you Just know? Just the formation. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is what Jimmy often says, Professor Patino at the U, he's like, when people say that we need to reform ICE or it's broken, we need to fix it. That's the thing he really talks about. Yeah. It's broken, we need to fix it. That statement is so fundamentally flawed because ICE and the deportation regime is just doing what it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. Keep wages down for a workforce that's disposable, right? Like, yeah. it's it's a really new concept that like right-wing folks, conservative folks are against immigration. Like you have the wealthiest, the wealthiest, like some of the wealthiest like Republican donors are very, very pro-immigration in a very structured way that preserves their ability to have access to low-wage workers that right. are disposable and exploitable. Right. That's what they want, right? right? right. This, this nativism, this sentiment of like, being okay with separating families, having people die in custody is a fairly new concept, mm-hmm. right? It's it's a it's a it's a more recent phenomenon as you see a more visible increase of white supremacy and white supremacist ideas. Right. Yeah. It's a really fucked up system. Indeed, it is. And then, so we, uh, so one thing that I have been just really trying to focus on in terms of immigration is also like the you know like the backlash of it all like so what happened so eventually these concentration camps will be over i mean it may take right. years hopefully it'll not down at some level. right eventually it'll it'll be over but what's going to happen after that where are these people going to go i don't know right they're going to just get i mean that was that was the goofy thing that trump was trying to do right he was trying to dump them in like san francisco or la or other like liberal hotbeds right. just to 
be a dick, right? Like, yeah. that's that's the strategy. I well, when know. I was back home in El Paso in January, my friend was telling me that uh, she was downtown when it happened. That all of a sudden, like two busloads of people were just, just got dropped. They just dropped them off downtown, Jesus. and they were primarily Guatemalan immigrants, and mm-hmm. they just dropped them off downtown. Yeah, these homies are just like get busted, no so yeah, right. Like, yeah, there's no orientation for them. And uh, so my friend said that there was there was a couple of organizations there that like were aware that this was happening. Yeah. Like, they, so they were aware that it was going to happen on this day. So luckily, there were some people there and some organizations were trying to rent out as many hotel rooms and motels as they could find but I'm literally our government no infrastructure for that yeah our yeah. government literally dropped off busloads of people in the middle of downtown El Paso well it reminds me of, them off. it reminds me of a phenomenon in LA has been going on forever that gets reported every so often so the notion of patient dumping so so a patient goes into West Covina West Covina hospital so 30 miles 30ish miles outside of LA they don't have insurance, and literally the hospitals would just dump them in downtown LA on Skid Row with all the homeless folk, just because they don't want to have to pay for them. <laughs> it's not, it's like, what? that's the thing, when we can reduce people to being disposable, the shamelessness just increases exponentially, right? Mm-hmm. This is what is the basis of slavery in this country, the notion of disposability. This is, I mean, this is what my research talks a lot about, that I didn't, I didn't finish my doctorate, but like, when you can figure out how to think of someone as disposable then in Guatemala what happens is genocide right when their bodies and lives just don't matter anymore yeah this is this was terrifying for me this is what I see when I see these things happen it's extremely terrifying because it's I mean it's it's on the verge of happening here I mean people don't believe that I mean I for a while there I, I never thought that we would have these camps here like I never thought that would happen in this country ever because, you know, we're no longer living in the 40s. Like, we are, we're progressive, you know, quote-unquote, we're progressive. But, I mean, this shit is happening. This shit is real. Right. And from from my perspective as a former scholar of Guatemala, like, this is very predictable because we were the intellectual architects who supported terror regimes in Guatemala to kill indigenous Maya people yeah. by the thousands. Yeah. Right? Like, it's... like the Guatemalans are responsible for what happened there to a lot to a, to a greater extent however like what I always said in my research was that um, my chair's <laughs> chair still squeaking oh my god I'm not farting I promise <laughs> <laughs> even though I did eat beans today but anyway I, I mean hate and racism were just like armed yeah like the the structures of hate and racism in Guatemala are there and they get just pumped with steroids and guns by the US government and so not surprisingly, genocide happens. And the intellectual architecture of that is what shapes our current government and has shaped our current government. It's not just foreign policy, it's also now internal policy. And so that's, that's why, like, so, so after Trump got elected, some people would ask me what I thought. And I would say, yeah. I'm a scholar of mass death. I don't know that you're ready to talk to me about that yet. And so, so then people are like, okay, thanks, I appreciate that. So like two months later, those same folks would come back to me and like, okay, what, can you just yeah. break down what you think is gonna happen? And I would say, look, what's what's really terrifying, not to be entirely dour, what, what's terrifying and exciting for me is I see both the possibility of what happened in Guatemala clearly just lay out in here because of not just Trump, and to, Trump is, is irrelevant at this point, but just the introduction right. of fundamentalist uh, principles similar to what happened in Guatemala in the 80s under Rios Montt. And I could also see the possibility of change and, and change in a enduring real way in this country what some might call revolution which I don't use that language as much anymore but I can see both happening and that's why I get really really excited and I'm, I love being devoted to journalism because it's an opportunity to give people information they don't think is available to them particularly investigative journalism and to support agitation right I don't yeah. I don't want to tell people what to do I have no interest in doing that Right. I want to give people tools to figure out what they want to, how they want to feel about it, not what they want to say about it and do about it. Right. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, that is the hope, getting people to listen to what, you know, what you have to say, what you write about. And what's actually happening, right? It's not my opinion. Yeah. I'm just laying out what's right. going on. Right, you're just laying out the facts. Yeah. Um, which, oh gosh, I mean, I mean, it's, 
it's been really scary, especially because I come like my my mother is was Mexican immigrant, and like we we have this conversation like when Trump got elected, how she just feared that she might get deported, even though she is an American right. citizen now. But it's like eventually, like that's not even gonna matter. Right. Like my dad was afraid of that during the Bush administration. Like we were we had a plan to like constantly carry our passports with us. Because he remembers yeah. that he was actually he has a memory of Mexicans being deported out of yeah. U.S. citizens of Mexican heritage being deported out of the United States. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I just I, I going back to like the backlash because one thing Japanese internment. I mean, yeah, exactly. A lot, a lot I mean, exactly. It's it, it's 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 history is repeating itself over and over again, and how like I. The, I mean, the the question is like, how do we make it stop? Like, how do we how do we, how do we make the history stop repeating itself and just move forward? But I mean, I guess that's just it's, it's, it's a dream. Well, Cornell West likes to say that it's history doesn't repeat itself in rhymes. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's well. not that rigid. There's always possibility. There's oh. always opportunities for possibility. <laughs> God, I hope so. so I'm not. I'm not trying to make up hope. I'm just. This is how I approach my work. Right. I know you can. You know, I'm not trying to make up hope. I'm like I'm trying to make hope. I'm just saying. I, just, I know <laughs> we need hope because like we do, man. Like we need the possibility of change. We do need the possibility of change. I was reading an article the other day. I wish I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't finish it. Uh, but it, cause it was, it was heartbreaking because um, it, it was about. Uh, the immigrant children, some immigrant children being returned to their parents, and mm-hmm. how they don't, the, the children didn't even recognize their parents. They don't remember them. They yeah, don't know who they are. There, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting about uh, experts in child cognition and pediatrics talking about what are the irreparable side effects of what's happened. In the, okay. And, like, I mean, this is something that comes up a lot in my therapy and, and in other conversations is. Only in the last, like, maybe 15 years has there been a greater recognition of what happens, what the notion of child in arm attachment issues, and how that shapes not just the way people relate to each other, but also how that shapes your brain. Yeah. And so there are things that are happening to these children that are irreparable. Right. That are permanent. Right. Like, we haven't even touched base on the fact that, like, it's, it's actually uh, been proven that some of these children have been sexually assaulted. Yeah. By by who? By the officer? By American officers? By whoever's running these like concentration camps? Right. Be they private interests? And like, who's who are hiring these people? Where are the background and checks? There's been and amazing people? reporting that's found out where these places are. These she- quote unquote shelters. Yeah. Otherwise, people just didn't know about it. Like yeah. Autobogado at Reveal has found, or uh, Center for Rescue Reporting has has like found these spots through just sourcing really hard and figuring it out. Yeah. Like, these aren't... There's no transparency in the system. There's no accountability in the system. And when there's no transparency or accountability when we're talking about youth, sexual assault happens, right? Yeah. And they're they're getting away with that. Yeah. And so basically, they're still picking up a paycheck for abusing children. What kind of a country do we live in for we're allowing people to abuse children and pay them for it? Which also, like, there's a lot of things to say about, like, you know, I don't know, but like, at least what I what I learned in in jail prison culture is that the abuse of children is like the the thing that is the most heinous of all crimes, right? The thing that we recognize is the worst thing that we can do. There's there's some common understanding, yeah, in custody among inmates and you know deputies, jailers, whatever that that's no, and people seem to agree that this is a bad thing. Yet we find so many examples, yeah, of of predatory people in power doing these things yeah like at Jeffrey Epstein for example like oh, yeah you know, quote-unquote yeah. billionaire setting up these like tra- I'm now doing some reporting on some sex trafficking too that I can't get into specifically but like <laughs> I'm still developing so it I can't get into it I know this is a lot of this is I'm only I've only been a journalist full-time for like a little over a year and a half and I think I'm finally getting my stride which means that I'm getting a lot of tips on stuff that like is kind of blowing me away and I don't, I'm not sure what to do about it like, yeah. I'll figure it out. And there's now teams of people that are helping me. And now there's people I can go to if I think the article is too big. I can drop it with them and still support it. But you know, give it to a team yeah. of folks that can really give it the justice that it deserves. Yeah, that's awesome. You're getting the information out there. Man, yeah, <laughs> it's tough. There's just a lot of gnarly stuff going on. Yeah, and it's not like I didn't know these things were happening, but like, 
but then you actually finding proof of these things happening. Well, and this is what I tell people about investigative journalism. The hardest thing about it is that I know how fucked up shit is before I can publish it. Like, a really big piece takes about three to six months of just, like, developing it, getting people to talk to you, pulling data requests, whatever. And so it takes me six months to finally, like, publish it. Like, the prison labor piece took a year and a half. And I, you know, you, so you carry the weight of, of the content for that long and I finally release it and I can finally talk to people about it and share mm-hmm. what I've done and sort of the pain I've been carrying in developing these, these articles because, you know, you can't, you can't write and develop these pieces without attaching to some aspect of it. Yeah. And with the prison labor piece, like I have a, a pretty, pretty like, um, grounded and in, interactive intimate relationship with Zeke Caligari now yeah and his mother died when we were reporting and yeah I knew her and I got to know her and I, she meant a lot to me as well and so what does it mean though to be the editor of a newspaper and being brown so as far as I know I'm the only um brown editor of an English language language publication in this state and I don't know that my co-workers like I have co-workers they don't work for workday I just don't know that they can really understand what that means for me and how much that sits on me. Like, I, that's a that's a really that's a really just important responsibility for me. Right. And that's partly what makes Minnesota interesting is that uh, you don't have an infrastructure like the immigrant community is so new that there's not a lot of like folks that have college education that can do these jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like. There's a lot of people like me in Los Angeles or other places. Right. I'm the only one here. Right. What the fuck? Oops. <laughs> well, it's very common over there for brown people to have higher jobs. Right, right, right. right, right. It's not common like, well, over here for brown people to have higher so jobs. So there's a lot of opportunity, but also it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. You know, and it's not like it changes the, my standards of journalism or right. how I approach my work. It just means that, like, the weight of it is... is greater for me yeah it also means you have to work harder yeah because because the content isn't taking it seriously right yeah so the national the national piece was really important for me because it's my first national piece and that gives things greater recognition and validity and yeah it gives people an opportunity to be taken more seriously mm-hmm. and that that matters what does it mean for you to be brown in this position it means that uh it means that I've completely changed the content of Workday. <laughs> the founding editor who retired, uh, she, or maybe, I think she retired, I don't exactly know for sure. White woman, nice white lady, but that means the content's way different. That means I can directly communicate with Spanish speakers and not be translated. Uh, that means that I have to have a proofreader because English isn't my first language. And we had to negotiate that and figure that out in terms of the infrastructure of, of Workday and what I can do. It means that uh, I spend a lot longer on my articles than a conventional journalist because I don't just talk to a Spanish speaker or, or a person of color and say, jump in and get my quote and leave. I spend right. time with people, I develop trust, I develop relationships. Yeah. Well, because you have to with people of color. Like, because it's because, well, I mean, we're careful with who we talk to right. because of the stupid shit that's going on. Well, and... Yes, absolutely. And also, like, I'm I'm really focused on people that normally don't get reported on. Yeah. And that means that, like, if you don't have the practice of explaining things or representing yourself, then that means that, like, your first draft is not a great draft. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. I don't want their first draft to be the quote. I want to spend time with them, help them represent themselves, help folks represent themselves as in the best way possible. And that yeah. takes time. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. And I love it. It's important to me. It just means that it takes longer. Yeah, that's amazing. And you're doing really great work. Thanks. So congratulations on that. Yeah, I try to. And congratulations on this beautiful home. This beautiful home you can't see. We won't throw photos in because that's just too much work. <laughs> maybe we'll do. Maybe we can do like a live segment in the home. That'd be fun. Well, one day. I one think, day. I think we'll get there. I think when it's we'll, not as hot. We'll do it's too hot. Maybe just live. Yeah. In vivo. In la casa. In vivo. <laughs> Oh my god, friend. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and producing the show. This is my producer, everyone. It is. This is what episode this will be? This is episode four? I'll go before Fernie right now. Yes. Because we have to get this out. 
Yeah. Sorry, Fernie. Sorry, Fernie. Oh my gosh, Fernie's episode's gonna be amazing. <laughs> but so the way I I now tend to end these episodes is I well, yeah. I want to ask you. I forgot about that. Yeah, you didn't come I wasn't prepared. Ready. I wasn't ready. Uh, I forgot. Well, well, now you're gonna have to like just think on the fly. Okay. So improvise. What do you want to tell the community? What do you want to tell La Raza? What do you want to tell the comunidad? Huh. In general? Yeah. What do you want to tell your people? Hmm. This is your chance. This is your platform. What do you want to tell them? Huh. Um, I think what I... what So the reason I started being a journalist is because... Or writing and I, the reason why I developed El Guateque is because I got tired of both us and our ideas being misrepresented and I also got really tired of like being in activist meetings and hearing people say oh we need to shift our speakers or our march route because LA Times may not cover it if we do if we don't manipulate what we're doing to the interests of these communication channels and so that was really the intention of what that gave is to seize the means of intellectual production under our own vision and cosmology and in our interests. And so that's, I mean, really what I want for all of us is to seize our own perspective and articulate as best we can. And whatever I can do to support that, if it means training people to write articles, to do investigative work, to dive into public documents, I'm more than happy to do because we all benefit from people being more devoted to figuring out what's really going on. Because whatever the fuck they tell us is not what's really going on, <laughs> right? Ain't whatever. That the truth. That's the whole point of investigative journalism. Yeah. Is if I just listen to what the government, a corporation, some nonprofits say about what they're doing, I'm not telling the right story. Exactly. I gotta dig in and find some some other information. Exactly. So, that's yeah. what I'm committed to with my community you have spoken you have spoken <laughs> to the people to the people don't listen to the government don't listen to the government let's not go that far because they are listening <laughs> alright the government is listening yeah, this is a public podcast you're right <laughs> be, be you know tactically s- suspicious <laughs> okay 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 listen to the government but be suspicious yes and pay, um, that's the point pay attention it is you know, pay attention exactly, to everything exactly but just don't believe it. <laughs> and on that note. And on that note. We're okay, done. bye. Bye.